Listen, when you came in, maybe you grabbed an outline. Maybe you've got it on your device or your phone right now with the Three Crosses app. Let's find our way to that outline and let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24, please. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 30 today. Last week, Pastor Danny got us going with this picture of the end of the world and the return of Christ. This is known in Matthew's gospel as the Olivet Discourse. It's where Jesus is telling his disciples that he's coming. They're asking questions about when is this going to be and what will be the sign of your return. And Jesus is going to talk very deeply about that. And we're today going to focus on this amazing truth of the return of Christ. And I hope that when we're done today, although this will be somewhat deep and there may be some complexity to it, that we'll walk out of here with a real simple and, and beautiful reminder of what what it should be, what our thinking should be around this whole theme of the return of Christ that we find in Scripture. Um, and I hope today that all of our lives will be changed as a result of it. So let's read the text and see what God has to say to us in this beautiful passage. This is Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples, verse 30. At that time, the, son, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with the handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions." But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, we'll stop right there. It's an amazing text of Scripture, and there's no way we can cover everything that is here, but I'm going to try to give you the most important pieces as we walk through this text this morning. 
What is this text about? Yesterday, I was at a memorial service for a dear woman who had attended our church for years. Her name is Helen Millen. She died last month at 93 years of age. I remember when her husband, Harold, died in 1993. It was a shock to the family, of course, and I remember being a part of their family at that time. Well, Helen uh, continued on for quite a while before her body became a little bit immobilized. And so for the last several years, her family worked really hard just keeping her in her little Castro Valley home right down here off of Lake Chabot Road. And so last month, the Lord, it was her time and she went home to be with the Lord. Every picture we saw of Helen yesterday had a beautiful smile on her face. I was, I was amazed at not only the pictures that seemed to always capture her smile, but the testimonies of her family and friends that stood up at her service and testified of how her disposition was always one of joy. I was thinking about that yesterday, knowing that this morning we were going to open this text and talk about the disposition of believers in light of Jesus' return. About a month ago when I studied this passage, it became clear to me that what Jesus is saying is that every believer ought to have his own or her own disposition about the return of Christ. And somehow that disposition needs to be communicating to those around us that Jesus is in fact coming again. And so I'd like to break it down for you this morning and show you these things right in the text. If you have your Bibles open or your tablet or wherever you are, I want to point out first in verses 30 through 35 that ours is to be a disposition of certainty. Why don't you say that word with me? Certainty. What I mean by that is that we believe Jesus is coming again. Now right off the bat, I have to stop and just sort of ask the question rhetorically, do you really believe that Jesus is coming I mean, we live in a world that I think that that sounds like science fiction to a lot of people or fairy tales or fables. Believers, since the time that Christ walked the earth, have believed that Jesus, the one that we place our faith and trust in, the one who died and rose again from the grave, is in fact going to come. The early church believed that Jesus would return in their own lifetime. In fact, did you notice in verse 34, Jesus said that, this generation will certainly not pass until these things have happened. And that has caused a lot of confusion and question about what did he mean by saying this generation. I think the best scholarship would show that the, the generation that enters what Jesus is describing there in verses 29 and following with the season of great distress on the world, known as the great tribulation, that it would be that generation that would not pass away until all these things had come about. But believers for, since the beginning of the church have believed that Jesus would come in their own lifetime. And every generation has sort of had this view and every generation looks for signs to seem, somehow indicate if this might be the time that Jesus is returning. And I remember I grew up in a little Baptist church across the bay and you know that, you've heard me tell stories. And I remember in the early 70s there was sort of a resurgence of teaching and preaching and evangelistic meetings on the return of Christ. Uh, Larry Norman, a, uh, one of a, a popular you know, uh, Christian musician at the time, had come out with some songs, talked about the coming of Christ. Uh, a movie was produced called A Thief in the Night. Anybody remember that movie? Um, I, I'm dating myself there, but when I was about eighth grade, I remember seeing that movie and it scared me to death. The, the premise of the movie was Jesus was coming back to take his people and there will be people left behind. A Thief in the Night. And I remember going home from one of those meetings around that time and being a little freaked out, like thinking, you know, like, I don't want to miss the second coming of Christ. I don't want to be, a, I don't want to be one of those left behind. 
And, and, and then I remember distinctly right in that same week where all this was kind of coming to a crescendo in my own heart, I came home from school one day and I walked home from school every day. And this particular day when I got to the place where my, up on the hill where we lived across the bay, uh, everything seemed eerily quiet. It was just sort of a, a strange, like nobody was around. There were no people out in their yards. There was no cars driving down the road. And I remember just a little question like, this is weird. And then I come in the house my mom was not working at the time. Her car was in the garage. And I go, hey, mom, I'm home. Throw my books down. No response. And I'm thinking, that's weird. And I walk through the house. My grandmother was staying with us at the time. And she was an elderly lady and doesn't get out really much on her own. And she wasn't there either. Both my mom and my grandmother were not there. They're both believers in Christ. <laughs> and I start, Am I, have I been left behind? I'm, so, I'm seriously having this meltdown. I run to the front window and look down to a street where there's always a bunch of cars, and there were just a couple cars going down the road. And then, do you remember those air horn, like the, the sirens that used to go off in neighborhoods that kind of test the emergency system? Whoa, you know, go on. And all of a sudden, that thing goes off. And I'm thinking, <laughs> Well, okay, good news is I wasn't left behind. Jesus had not returned. But I remember that that kind of shook me as a kid. I, I remember from that point forward wanting to drill down a little deeper into what it really means and was this really true and is Jesus really coming back? And am I really prepared for that? Now, thankfully, the Lord showed me through Scripture and reading and studying that if you're a believer in Christ, you don't have to fear the second coming of Christ. In fact, this was the blessed hope of every believer. It should be something Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, that we should encourage one another with these words, that the Lord is coming back. This is not a scare thing. It's not a fear thing. But for me, who was a kid and thinking maybe that I've been left behind, it was something that sort of, you know, got my attention. But you know, the, the Bible is clear that Jesus is coming back. Uh, did you know that there's nearly 3,000 prophecies in Scripture that talk about the second coming of Christ. And did you also know, this blew my mind, that for every one prophecy that deals with the first coming of Christ, which we're about to celebrate, not that Jesus was born in December, but we celebrate, the Christian calendar celebrates the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of God in human flesh at Christmas time. We're about to celebrate that. Did you know that for every one prophecy of the coming of Christ, which are all through Scripture, there are eight prophecies for the second coming of Christ. It's as, like, it's as if God wants us to really tune in and see that as glorious and amazing it was that God visited this planet 2,000 years ago, it's even more incumbent that we as His followers recognize that He is coming again. So here's the question. Do you believe it? Are you certain now, his second coming is marked by two separate but related events. And I'll just be brief on this, but I think it's important to understand. First, he comes for his bride, the church. And we call this in evangelicalism, we call this the rapture of the church. I don't know if you've heard much about this, but we believe that there's a, it's kind of a two-stage coming. And by the way, uh, this is, uh, not everyone believes everything I'm going to say right here. There's, there's some mystery to it all. We believe that Jesus is coming back, but is he coming back first to take his church, sort of snatch his church out of this world? And, and it would appear so. When I read the scriptures, when I read passages like John 14, where Jesus said to his disciples, and I go, I will go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. 
and I will come and take you to be with me. That's, and he's speaking to his church. He's speaking to his followers in John chapter 14. When we come over to 1 Thessalonians 4, there's another beautiful passage there where, where the Apostle Paul writes. He says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, like we sang about this morning, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Verse 18, 1 Thessalonians 4. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and several other places that we could go to to see that there is possibly this snatching away, this this escape of believers out of the world before the heavy hitting of God's tribulation, the great tribulation that comes on this planet, followed by the, the crescendo of His second coming. Now, they're very close together. Some theologians believe they're right next to each other. Some believe they're one and the same, sort of a rapture and then right back for the second coming. Um, but I see two distinct events, and that's, that's a pretty uh, evangelical, premillennial theological view. And maybe, maybe you have a little different view about that. I don't want to quibble about it. But what I'm saying is, in the end of the day, we all have to come to the terms of what Scripture says, that Jesus is coming. And some of us are not very certain about it. Uh, this is an amazing truth. Now, he comes first for his bride. Secondly, after this, he comes to judge the earth and set up his earthly reign. And I think the reason I'm saying that is because I think that's what we're hearing and reading about here in Matthew 24. This is not the rapture of the church. This is the second coming. This is the glorious Revelation 19. This is him coming in the clouds of heaven to earth to, to battle the great battle that we'll read about in just a minute uh, at the end of the tribulation period where Jesus sets up his earthly kingdom. This is Matthew 24, and this is in Revelation 19 and 1 Thessalonians 5 and other places in Scripture. The point is, Jesus is coming. And I just, I'm just wondering this morning if, if that's where all of us are, if we really live with that reality in our lives. I think a lot of us have sort of pushed that off. And there's, by the way, there's two abuses when it comes to thinking about the return of Christ. One abuse is to neglect it, like I think maybe most of us have. That's the bigger problem. The other abuse is to obsess over it to where you really don't, you know, the Bible says that the, uh, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about Jesus. It's focusing on Jesus. And so, you know, if you're obsessing, and there are people that do obsess over the return of Christ, I don't think that that's really what Jesus had in mind. We should live with a clarity and a confidence and an assurance and a certainty that Jesus is coming again. That's the first point. The second point that I see in this passage is that our disposition should not only be one of certainty, but it should also be one of readiness. Say the word readiness. Now, you could put anticipation, you could put expectation, whatever you want in that blank, but our disposition should not only be certain, but it should also be a readiness. What I mean by that is that we are looking for His return. Beginning in verse 36, and we walk down through that, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, but we should be ready. Keep watch, verse 42. Uh, look, verse 44, be ready. The, the, the language of sort of anticipation that is there. And the reason we are looking is because no one knows when this will happen. That's what Jesus said right here. We don't really know. But we can look for things, and that's what Matthew 24 is about. There's signs that are happening. There's things that sort of remind us 
that maybe this is the time. And sometimes we think, like we talked about last week, the political arena is sort of like a reminder, ooh, this is weird, it feels weird to us. But, you know, that's America. Like, think about around the world. Think about people waking up in Aleppo today or in Mosul and thinking about what their world feels like. And I wonder if any of them are thinking about this maybe being the end of the world. Or think about people in post or, or even uh, during the Nazi regime in Germany and think about the Jews and think about all the world events where people would likely think this has got to be the time that Jesus is coming back. But Jesus says, be very careful with this because I want you to be ready, but nobody knows when it's really going to happen. I, when I was a little kid in elementary school, I had a little thing I'd do with my friends. And, you know, no consciousness of time. I just knew that a certain, I would come home from school, I would do a little homework, then my mom would let me go out and play with my friends and we'd play kickball or baseball or whatever. We'd hit rocks with bats and sometimes break windows. We'll talk about that. But anyway... Got into a lot of trouble in the, that time. But, but I remember being able to, this, at a certain point, not knowing the time, but just a certain point, hey, I think it's about that time, we would run down to the end of the street and we would wait there for my dad who was driving home from work. Now, uh, the street we lived on was on the top of a hill, flat you know, road. At the end of that road, you could look down where about 300 yards, there was kind of a long road that had a turn at the bottom of the hill. You couldn't see anything beyond that turn. And we would just stand there at the top of the hill, and maybe we would wait for an hour sometimes, or 30 minutes, or I don't know. I had no sense of time. We just would wait there because it was probably about the time my dad would come home. Sometimes he would work late, sometimes he wouldn't, but... When we see that little 1957 Volkswagen Beetle turn the corner, we'd go crazy. And the reason why we'd go crazy is because my dad, when he got to the top of that hill, he'd let us pile on the car. We'd, we'd ride on the outside. We'd ride on the back bumper. And then he would take us down the street back home, back to where I live, back where he lived. And our, my friends would love it. My dad was just like the hero because we got to climb. And let's keep in mind, this was during an era where there was total disregard for the safety of children. There was, <laughs> I mean, no seatbelts, no helmets on bikes, nothing. It was like, have at it. It was a beautiful time to be alive as a kid. And, and my dad would just pile us on and just, we just, but every day, it was like we would anticipate. And when I think about that, I think about this is what Jesus wants us to do when we think about the second coming. He wants us to, to see that there's a season. Yeah, we're, we could, this could very well be the time of the last days, the time that we're talking about here in Matthew 25. We know we're not there just yet. We know the great tribulation hasn't happened yet as we read Revelation. <laughs> Revelation 6 through 18 describes what's going to happen in the great tribulation where God goes to work on the Jewish people and, and he's going to bring a remnant out and there's going to be great revival in the world. And I believe the church is going to be gone during this time. But seven years of radical, radical trials and tribulation around the world, read that if you like to, Revelation 6 through 18. It'll blow your mind. And then you'll say, whoa, I realize this isn't the great tribulation we're in. It can be bad at times, but it's not the great tribulation. But at the end of that, Jesus is coming back. If you talk to your friends today about a worldwide economy that might crash, you'd probably have great debate about that. And yeah, we see signs of that going on. That could be a big part of this, you know, exposure and what's going to happen in the world where Jesus comes, takes his people. Can you imagine the banks and all the crazy stuff that's going to go on in the world? And as Christians, we we kind of say this, we believe this is going to happen. Do we? Yeah, I, I do. I do. Because it's in the Bible. I trust God's Word. 
when people didn't believe that Jesus would come the first time, when people started him and hot about that, even Herod, we're going to see that coming up in a few weeks where Herod was not five miles away from Bethlehem and he wouldn't even go check out what the, what the Pharisee, what the, what the, excuse me, the, the chief priests and the scribes told him that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He wouldn't even go check it out. And so there are people today that don't even check this stuff out, but the Bible is nonetheless true. We, we don't know when this is going to be, so that's why we look. That's why we watch. And there's always people that want to come along and sort of like say they figured it out, you know, when Jesus is going to come. And if you look at the, the spectrum of church history, you'll see there's periods where people will step out of the curtain, so to speak, and say, hey, I figured it out. Jesus is coming on X, you know. There was a guy in the 1800s, very popular Baptist pastor who got people, th- he thought he was sincere that Jesus was coming back in 1844. And so he preached it and taught about it for months leading up to that time. And thousands of people in evangelical America believed what he had to say. And they went out to the highest places near them where they lived to kind of get a jump start on like, you know, meeting the Lord in the air. Crazy stuff. People went to gravesides to have, you know, be with their loved ones that were resurrected so that they would be with their loved ones. I mean, this happened in church history, in recent history. But, of course, 1844 came and went, and William Miller died in 1845, I think, or 1848, I think he died. Um, and so there's people that come along. Harold Camping, you know, 2000, well, first 1994, wrote the book, Jesus Coming Back. And then 2011, May 21st, I think it was. Remember that? Big billboards around, Judgment Day's coming, the return of Christ. Now, listen, I, what I liked the fact that we, we should be reminded he's coming, but every time, listen, every time somebody puts a date on it or says they figured it out leads to terrible realities. And the biggest one of all is the fact that they look like idiots when it doesn't happen. And in fact, you know, the fact that Jesus says, no one knows, and I will come at a time that you don't expect, when anybody puts a date on it, I go, well, at least I know that's not the date, you know? Because if everybody thought and figured it out, I mean, you know, God's supreme, he's sovereign, he'd worked around that. But the point is, we don't know. We don't know. But here's, here's another reason why we, we look. And that is because unbelievers haven't a clue about any of this. Unbelievers don't know. I mean, we know. We know that there's a day that's coming on the calendar when Jesus is going to pierce the sky. Do you ever have one of those experiences where you're somewhere and there's like light beams coming through the clouds in a beautiful way? You ever have this feeling? I do. And I go, whoa, that's amazing. Maybe this is it. You know, like you have this, you know, kind of a thought. I mean, I, I think the Lord wants us to think that way. He wants us to look and see and, and just sort of anticipate. I had a dear friend who every day when he got up, he said, this could be the day. That was the first thing he would say. And I realized that I'm often sort of off in left field. What are you talking about? This is the, oh yeah, the Lord's return. Yeah, I should be thinking about that. Non-believers don't have any clue. In 1969, a guy by the name of Larry Norman wrote a song called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And some of you maybe remember that song, uh, Life Was Filled With Guns and War and People Got Trampled on the Floor, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. You know, children died, the days grew cold, a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. 
you know, the time has come, uh, I don't know, the chorus goes something like, there's no time to change your mind, the sun has come and you've been left behind. And I remember in a youth group in the early 70s singing that song, just like our kids sing songs today and worship to God. And just, it's sort of like the songs of the church are always around somewhere they weave back around to the reality of Christ coming. There'll be people not ready. And whatever the language or the culture is speaking that, those songs or those lyrics, we have to lean in. We have to recognize that this is the promise of the Word of God. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can quickly go there to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. It's an, a minor prophet. It's near the New Testament. If you have your Bible or if you have a tablet, you can go there quickly to Joel chapter 3. Can I just show you a couple quick things? We've got to really pick up here. Uh, Joel chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and then verse 14. Now, this is talking about the second coming. Listen to the language of this. In those days and at that time... When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. We'll come back to this in just a second. This is Joel 3. This is, this is forecasting and looking toward the return of Christ to an area of northern Palestine, northern Israel now, um, that is known as uh, the plain of uh, Jezreel. It was where Jehoshaphat fought battles. It's known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. But I've heard evangelists preach this passage, Joel chapter 3, talking about this is the valley where people decide about God. But I would beg to differ that this is not the place where people decide about God. This is describing a place and a time where God is going to decide about people. And that's, that's staggering to me, that there's coming a day where, where Jesus is going to come to this earth and he's going to judge the nations of the world and he's going to judge people based on what they believed about him. And we should think about that. This valley of, of Megiddo. The Mount Megiddo is there, the Esdrelin Plain. I've stood there, 1982, in this beautiful, fertile valley in northern Israel where the greatest battle of all time, according to Revelation 16, 16, is going to take place in the history of our world where the enemies of God will assemble together out of the north and come together in one big climactic battle where Jesus will slay them with the word of his mouth. Revelation 19, he will carry a sword and, and on his thigh is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it will not be much of a battle because Jesus is going to do business with all those who were wicked and all the nations of the world that judged. And at that crescendo of history where the world wants to just come with all their fury against the one whom they've been fighting for for millennia, fighting against for millennia, this Jesus is going to come and vanquish his foes. Now, I don't believe we're going to actually be there in that battle. I believe we might be watching and seeing that from, or maybe coming with Jesus as Revelation talks about. And it's a mystery. Let's not get too detailed. We can't talk of some of these things with great detail, but the point is he's coming. And we don't know when it's going to be, but the bigger problem is there's a world out there that has no clue about what's coming. And it's our job. Jesus told us to go and preach the gospel in every nation. 
And the gospel includes the fact that Jesus came, he died on the cross and rose again from the grave, but that he's coming again. This is the blessed hope, the hope of every believer in Christ and the hope of any person who hears today. You might be sitting here today and you've never made your peace with God. Don't go through the rest of your life trying to be good enough to be accepted by Christ. You give him your life today. You trust that he died, that he took your condemnation, and that through him you can have life eternal and experience the blessed uh, coming of Christ in what I believe will be where he takes you out of this world, goes to work on this world in judgment at the end of that, comes and sets up his kingdom on earth. What a day that will be. Our disposition is one of certainty. It's one of readiness. Look at this one, verses 45 through 51. It's also a disposition of faithfulness. Say the word faithfulness. We're living in view of his return. Now this is where it gets really practical. We've got to wrap this up. But when Jesus returns to earth to set up his kingdom, number one, he will reward his servants. Do you see that in the text back to Matthew 24? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Who is the faithful and wise servant that the master has put in charge of all his household to give them their food at proper time? This is what Jesus promises to his, to his people, that there will be great reward for everyone, even at his second coming, the judgment of sin and wickedness, but the reward for those who stayed true, even during the tribulation period of time. All the Jews that, that lived and died as martyrs during that time, all the believers that came, the Gentile believers during the tribulation that will be saved. There will be thousands, hundreds of thousands of people saved during the great tribulation, and there will be great reward. The language of this is beautiful to me. It reminds us that this is what we today as believers in Christ uh, strive to be in that multitude of people that receive our reward. Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, 2 Peter 3, 9 through 14, all talk about what kinds of lives should we live. In fact, let's take our Bibles quickly. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3 quickly. 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 9. And we're, I know we're just skimming the surface, but this is good stuff. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Some people think the Lord is slow in His coming, right? It's been 2,000 years. What does the Bible tell us? The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, Peter writes, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Isn't that good? He doesn't want anybody to, to be lost or left behind. Now, we know that there will be. But here's the promise that this is God's heart for lost people. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, verse 10. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Here we're talking about the second coming. It's the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Since everything is to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be, Peter writes? You ought to look forward. You ought to live godly, holy, and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And it goes on from there. This is a beautiful reminder to us. This is the so what? How do we live? We live godly, holy lives. We're not perfect. We never will be. But we want to lean into holiness. When is the last time you, you even thought about, am I living a life that is above reproach? Is there anything in my life that would take away from the beauty and splendor of God's holiness? Is there anything that people could see in my life and say, you're a hypocrite? If there is any of that, we should be moving away as fast and as quickly as we can so that we can live lives that manifest 
a desire to walk in the holiness of God. We can't do that on our own strength. He gives us that power by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus returns to earth, not only will he reward those who are his, but he will judge those who are unfaithful to him. And that's how this passage closes. It closes with crazy, the language of judgment, the language of hell. Verse 51, he will cut him into pieces, assign him to a place of the hypocrites where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not a happy scene. That's a judgment scene. And you know, God keeps these things before us because he wants us to be prepared. And he wants to give us an urgency in our hearts to talk to people. And I don't know about you, but I think all of us need to be a little more focused on the reality of Christ's promised coming and live like he could come today. How would we live our lives differently if we really believed this would be the day? So this morning, maybe the Lord brought you to this service. I know we've gone a little over here. It's okay. We're going to wrap up right now. If you've never opened your heart to Christ, this can be the day where today you settle and make your peace with him. Let's go to the Lord right now in prayer. Shall we pray?